it's like a checklist for the most haunted place you can think of. You've got the vengeful spirit of a woman who was murdered for accidentally poisoning the wife and children of the house's owner. There's also the mirror that hangs in the house that, when photographed, shows the ghostly handprints of the children she poisoned. You've got a man shot to death on the front porch who managed to stagger up the staircase to the 17th step and died in his wife's arms. There's also three men who died shot to death in the house who left bloodstains on the floor that their ghosts don't allow to be removed. You've also got a French woman who wanders from room to room with a candle, searching for someone she never finds. And don't forget the cries and whimpers of a baby that comes from the room where it died. Could the French woman be seeking this child? You've also got a little girl in a long dress who peers into a second floor window, trying to see inside, who appears just before a thunderstorm. See what I mean? Super haunted, right? Well, I'd agree with that statement, if any of those stories were true. The Myrtles Plantation in the West Feliciana Parish town of St. Francisville, Louisiana, holds the rather dubious record of hosting more ghostly phenomena than just about any other house in the country. But what could be more dubious than the honor itself? Well, that would be the questionable history that's long been presented to explain why the house is so haunted in the first place. The claim for decades as one of the most haunted houses in America, the Myrtles attracts an almost endless stream of visitors each year, many of whom come searching for ghosts. There seems to be little doubt that the house is haunted. It's the reason for the haunting that's been called into question. For several generations, owners and guides at the plantation presented facts and history they knew were blatantly false. The Myrtles, according to hundreds of people who have encountered the resident spirits, is indeed haunted, just not for the reasons we've been told. A simple check of historical records reveals the true story, which you're just about to hear, and which I helped uncover two decades ago. As is often the case, the true story is not as sensational as the story everyone, including myself, grew up with. But it's still strange and macabre. The history of the plantation is filled with death, tragedy, and despair, which leads us to wonder why the fanciful history was created in the first place. Unfortunately, there's a good reason for it, and you're probably not going to like it. But it explains why the plantation and so many houses like it are still haunted by stories that have no basis in fact. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Home, which is written and performed by Troy Taylor and produced and co-hosted by Cody Beck. This is season eight of the American Hauntings podcast, Home. With this episode and the season ahead, we'll be going in search of America's murder houses, where the spirits of the past still linger. Throughout the year, we'll be taking you behind the locked doors of both famous and little-known places where murder, violence, and bloody events have occurred that left a mark on the house as a haunting. That's right. History and hauntings in every single episode. And we're kicking things off with the true history of a house that's been called one of the most haunted houses in America. 
But I can promise you, unless someone else was using my material, which does happen, you've never heard this version of the Myrtle's Plantation history before. So buckle up. This is a ride you won't be expecting. The Myrtle's Plantation was constructed by David Bradford in 1794, and since that time has allegedly been the scene of at least 10 murders. In truth, though, only one person was ever murdered at the Myrtle's, but there were plenty of deaths that occurred on the property. I've been able to confirm at least 16, and probably more. The plantation has a genuinely dark history that has, I believe, left real ghosts behind. David Bradford was one of five children born in America to Irish immigrants. In 1777, he purchased a tract of land and a small stone house in Washington County, Pennsylvania. He became a successful attorney, a businessman, and deputy attorney general for the county. His first attempt to marry ended only days before his wedding. No details are known about this, but he later met and married Elizabeth Porter in 1785 and started a family. As his family and his business grew, Bradford needed a larger house and built a new home in Washington, Pennsylvania. The house became renowned in the region for its size and remarkable craftsmanship, with a mahogany staircase and woodwork imported from England. Many items had to be transported from the East Coast over the Pennsylvania mountains at great expense. Bradford used the parlor of the house as an office where he would meet with his clients. Unfortunately, though, he didn't enjoy his splendid new house for long. In October 1794, he was forced to flee the region, leaving his family behind. Bradford became involved in the infamous Whiskey Rebellion, and legend has it that George Washington himself offered a reward for the capture of Bradford because of his role in the affair. The Whiskey Rebellion occurred in western Pennsylvania and began as grievances over high prices and taxes forced on those living along the frontier at the time. The complaints eventually erupted into violence when a mob attacked and burned down the home of a local tax collector. In the months that followed, residents resisted the tax that had been placed on whiskey, and while most of the protests weren't violent, Washington mobilized a militia and sent it to suppress the rebellion. Once the protests were brought under control, Bradford left the region on the advice of some of the other rebellion leaders. Well, he first fled to Pittsburgh. He left his family in safe hands and traveled down the Ohio River to the Mississippi River and points further south. He eventually settled at Bayou Sarah, near what is now St. Francisville, Louisiana. When Bradford was no stranger to the area. He had originally traveled here in 1792 to obtain a land grant from Spain, which controlled the region at the time. When he returned four years later, he purchased 600 acres of land and a year later built a modest eight-room home near Baton Rouge that he named Laurel Grove. And he lived there alone until 1799, when he received a pardon for his role in the Whiskey Rebellion from newly elected President John Adams. He was given a pardon in exchange for his assistance in establishing a boundary line, known historically as Ellicott's Line, between Spanish properties and the United States. After receiving the pardon, Bradford returned to Pennsylvania to bring his wife and five children to Louisiana. He brought them to Bayou Sarah, and they settled into a comfortable life there. Bradford occasionally took in students who wanted to study the law. One of them, Clark Woodruff, not only earned a law degree, but also married Bradford's daughter, 
Sarah Matilda. Clark Woodruff was born in Litchfield County, Connecticut in August 1791. With no desire to follow in his father's footsteps as a farmer, he left Connecticut at age 19 and sought his fortune on the Mississippi River, ending up in Louisiana. Clark was among the American settlers who decided to rebel against the Spanish garrison at Baton Rouge. The Spanish were overthrown and the rebels founded a new territory with a capital in St. Francisville. The new territory extended from the Mississippi River to as far east as the Perdido River near Mobile, Alabama. Clark was still seeking the fortune he hadn't made, so he placed an advertisement in the local newspapers in 1811 saying that he planned to open a new school on the first Monday in September. He planned to offer courses in English, grammar, astronomy, geography, elocution, composition, penmanship, Greek, and Latin. Phew. The academy apparently opened, but didn't last very long. In 1814, Clark enlisted in a cavalry regiment from the parish to fight alongside Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. Once the war ended, he returned to St. Francisville with plans to study the law. He began his studies with Judge David Bradford and soon earned his degree. He was also charmed by the Bradford's daughter, the lovely Sarah Matilda. The young couple was married on November 19, 1817, and for their honeymoon, Clark took his new bride to the Hermitage, the Tennessee home of his friend, Andrew Jackson. After the death of David Bradford, Clark managed Laurel Grove for his mother-in-law, Elizabeth. He expanded the holdings of the plantation and planted hundreds of acres of indigo and cotton. He and Sarah had three children, Cornelia Gale, James, and Mary Octavia. Tragically, their happiness wouldn't last. In the summer of 1823, a yellow fever epidemic swept through the region. The disease was the scourge of the South in the early 19th century, especially along the rivers. Mosquitoes spread the virus and symptoms included fever, chills, loss of appetite, nausea, back pains, and headaches. In many cases, patients seemed to improve, only to have the fever return, bringing stomach pains, bleeding, liver damage, yellowing skin, and death. There were no cures or vaccines for yellow fever in those days, and a few who contracted the disease, well, they were the very few who recovered from it. It was not unusual when yellow fever returned to the region in the summer of 1823. It came back almost every summer, killing people in New Orleans and all over Louisiana. Very few families in the region were untouched by tragedy and despair, including the Woodruff family. On July 21st, Sarah died at the Myrtles after a battle with yellow fever. Although heartbroken, Clark continued to manage the plantation and care for his children with help from his mother-in-law, Elizabeth. But the dark days weren't over yet. Yellow fever returned the following summer with the mosquitoes, and on July 15, 1824, Clark's only son, James, died from the dreaded disease. Then two months later, in September, daughter Cornelia Gale contracted the disease she also died. Clark Woodruff's life would never be the same, but he did purchase the plantation from his mother-in-law. Elizabeth was quite elderly by then and was happy to see this place in safe hands. She lived at Laurel Grove with her son-in-law and granddaughter Octavia until her death in 1830. After Elizabeth died, Clark turned the plantation over to the management of a caretaker and left Laurel Grove behind. There were simply too many 
bad memories there. He and Octavia moved to Covington, Louisiana, and Clark began practicing law and later was appointed to the bench as a judge. On January 1st, 1834, he sold Laurel Grove to Ruffin Gray Sterling, ending his 18 years of management and ownership of the plantation. By then, Clark was living on Rampart Street in New Orleans and had been elected the president of public works for the city. During this time, Octavia was sent to a finishing school in New Haven, Connecticut, but she returned home to live with her father in 1836. Two years later, she married Colonel Lorenzo Augustus Wisconsin and moved to his plantation, Oak Lawn, five miles north of New Orleans. In forty, the Louisiana governor, Isaac Johnson, appointed Clark to the newly created office of Auditor of Public Works, and he served for one term. Then at age 60, he retired and moved to Oak Lawn to live with Octavia and her husband. He devoted the remainder of his life to studying chemistry and physics and died on November 25, 1851. He was buried in the Garo Street Cemetery in New Orleans. Ruffin Grace Sterling purchased the Laurel Grove Plantation in 1834. The Sterlings were a wealthy family who owned several plantations on both sides of the Mississippi River. At the start of 1834, Ruffin and his wife, Mary Catherine Hereford Leak, took over the house, the land, buildings, and all the slaves that had been purchased from Elizabeth Bradford by her son-in-law. The Sterlings, with their wealth and prestige, decided they wanted to refurbish the house to reflect their social standing. Sterling added a broad central hallway in the entire southern section of Laurel Grove. The walls of the house were removed and repositioned to create four large rooms that were used as separate ladies and gentlemen's parlors, a formal dining room, and a game room. They took trips to Europe to purchase fine furnishings and also brought skilled craftsmen back with them. Those men laid bricks, carved stone and wood, and created elaborate plaster cornices for many of the rooms, which still remain today. They fashioned them with clay, Spanish moss, and cattle hair. On the outside of the house, Sterling added a 107-foot-long front gallery supported by cast-iron posts and railings. The original roof was extended to encompass the new addition, copying the existing dormers to maintain a smooth line. The addition had higher ceilings than the original house, so the second floor was raised by one foot. The completed project nearly doubled the size of David Bradford's house, and in keeping with the renovations, the name of the plantation was officially changed to the Myrtles. Four years after the completion of the project, Ruff and Sterling died on July 17, 1854, from tuberculosis. He left his vast holdings in the care of his wife, Mary, who most referred to as a, quote, remarkable woman. Many other plantation owners stated, in a way that we'd see as misogynistic today, but they actually meant it as a compliment, that she, quote, had the business acumen of a man. <laughs> well, this was high praise in the mid-1800s. She ran all the family's plantations single-handedly for many years. The family did well financially, but was often visited by tragedy. Of Ruffin and Mary's nine children, only four lived to adulthood. Their oldest son, Louis, died the same year his father did. The husband of her daughter, Sarah, was murdered on the front porch of the house after the Civil War. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The war itself wreaked havoc on the Myrtles and the Sterling family. 
Many of the family's belongings were stolen and destroyed by Union soldiers, and their massive wealth became worthless after it was converted into Confederate currency. Worse, Mary had invested heavily in sugar plantations ravaged by the war. Eventually, she lost everything but the Myrtles. Even so, she lived at the plantation until her death in August 1880. She was buried next to her husband in the family plot at Grace Church in St. Francis. Years before her death, in December 1865, Mary had hired William Drew Winter, her daughter Sarah's husband, to act as her agent, attorney, and manager for all her properties. Mary then transferred the title to the Myrtles to Sarah and William to keep it safe. William Winter was born to Captain Samuel Winter and Sarah Bowman on October 28, 1820, in Bath, Maine. Little is known about his early life or how he managed to meet Sarah Sterling. However, they were married on June 3, 1852 at the Myrtles, and together they had six children, Mary, Sarah, Kate, Ruffin, William, and Francis. Kate died from typhoid at the age of only three. The Winters first lived at a plantation the Sterlings owned near Clinton, Louisiana, called Gantmore. They later moved to a farm on the west side of the Mississippi called Arbroath, but 12 years after the death of Ruffin Sterling and the end of the Civil War, William became Mary's attorney and manager of her remaining plantations, which included Ingleside, Crescent Park, Botany Bay, and the Myrtles. Mary gave William and Sarah the Myrtles, but in, in the volatile economic times after the war, William couldn't hang on to it. By December 1867, he was bankrupt, and the U.S. Marshal sold the Myrtles to the New York Warehouse and Security Company on April 15, 1868. Two years later, though, on April 23, 1870, the property was sold back to Mrs. Sarah M. Winter as the heir of her late father. Now, it's unknown what caused this reversal of fortune, but things seemed to be improving for the family. But then tragedy struck again. According to the local newspaper, William taught a Sunday school lesson at the Myrtles on January 26, 1871. The men were in the gentleman's parlor when they heard someone approaching the house on horseback. The man on the horse, who was a stranger, called out to William, saying he had some business with him. William went out onto the side gallery of the house to talk with him, but suddenly the man on the horse pulled a pistol from his belt and shot him. William fell to his knees. He was dead before he collapsed onto the wooden boards of the porch. He was buried the next day in the cemetery at Grace Church. William's murder was never solved. A man named E.S. Weber was arrested and was supposed to stand trial for the murder, but the case against him was later dismissed. No other suspects were ever identified. Sarah was devastated by William's death, and she never remarried. She remained at the Myrtles with her mother and brothers until her death in April 1878. She was only 44. After Mary Sterling died in 1880, the Myrtles was purchased by her son, Stephen. He bought his brother shares of the estate, but only maintained ownership of the plantation until March 1886. Legend has it that Stephen squandered what was left of his fortune and lost the Myrtles in a card game, but there's no proof this is true. It's more likely the plantation was just too deeply in debt for him to manage and maintain. He ended over five decades of Sterling family ownership of the Myrtles when he sold it to Orrin D. Brooks. 
Brooks kept it until January 1889, when, after a series of transfers, it was purchased by Harrison Milton Williams, a Mississippi man who brought his young son and his new second wife, Fanny, to the Myrtles in 1891. Although injured during the Civil War, during which he served as a 15-year-old Confederate cavalry courier, William planted cotton and gained a reputation as a hardworking and industrious man. He and his family, which grew to include seven children, kept the Myrtles going during difficult times in the late 19th century South. But tragedy was soon to strike the Myrtles again. During a terrible storm, Harrison and Fanny's oldest son, Harry, was gathering stray cattle, fell into the Mississippi River, and drowned. Shattered by grief, the Williams turned over the management of the plantation to their son, Surgeon. He later married a local woman named Jessie Folks and provided a home at the Myrtles for a sister and a spinster aunt named Katie. Secretly called the Colonel behind her back, Katie was an eccentric character. Demanding and gruff on the surface, she was funny and kind to those she loved and kept things interesting at the farm for years. By the 1950s, the acres of property surrounding the house had been divided among the Williams heirs, and the house itself was sold to Marjorie Munson, a widow from Oklahoma whose husband had made his fortune with chicken farms. It was at this point, as far as I can tell, that the ghost stories and the Myrtles first began to be told. They started innocently enough, but soon the stories, well, just sort of took on a life of their own. The most famous ghost story linked to the Myrtles is, undoubtedly, the story of Chloe, a vengeful slave who murdered the wife and two daughters of Clark Woodruff in a fit of jealous anger. Now, but wait a minute. You might be thinking, didn't Clark's wife die from yellow fever? Yeah, well, we'll come back to that. Decades of people at the Myrtles have never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Anyway... According to this popular tale, the troubles that led to the haunting at the Myrtles began in 1817, when Sarah, the daughter of David Bradford, married Clark Woodruff. Sarah had already given birth to two daughters and was carrying a third child when the incident occurred. To truly understand this story, or this whatever, we need a little background. Clark Woodruff, master of the Myrtles, had a reputation for integrity in the area admired by his neighbors, and was known for his respect for the law. But, like many other white slave owners at the time, he was also known for sleeping with his female slaves. While his wife was pregnant with their child, he began an intimate relationship with a household servant named Chloe. Although she hated giving in to her master's sexual demands, she knew that if she didn't go along with them, she might be sent to work in the fields, which was the most brutal kind of work. Eventually, Clark got tired of Chloe and chose another girl to take her place. Chloe now feared the worst, convinced she would be sent to the fields. Trying to discover her standing in the house, she began eavesdropping on the Woodruff family's private conversations, dreading hearing the mention of her name. But one day, Clark caught her doing this and ordered that one of her ears be cut off to teach her a lesson. After this mutilation, she always wore a green turban around her head to hide the ugly scar that the knife had left behind. Now, what happened next is unclear. Well, really, it just depends on who's telling the story. Anyway, some claim that what occurred next was merely to make the family sick so that Chloe could nurse them back to health and earn Clark's gratitude. She believed this would keep her from being sent to the fields. Others say what she did next was for one reason only, 
revenge. Chloe took over preparing a birthday cake in honor of the Woodruff's oldest daughter. Mixed with the flour and sugar was a handful of crushed oleander flowers, which in the wrong hands could be a deadly poison. Sarah and the two children all had slices of the cake, but Clark didn't eat any of it. Before the end of the day, his wife and two daughters were so sick they couldn't get out of their beds. Chloe patiently attended to their needs. She didn't yet realize, if it was an accident, that she'd given them too much poison. By nightfall, all three were dead. The other slaves in the plantation, perhaps afraid they might also be punished, dragged Chloe out of her room and hanged her from a tree on the property. When she was dead, her body was cut down, weighted with stones, and thrown into the river. Clark then sealed off the children's dining room where the party was held, and he never allowed it to be used again during his lifetime. Even later, it was never used for dining, and it's called the game room today. Chloe's fate was sealed on the day she died. Her ghost has been encountered at the Myrtles ever since. She was even accidentally photographed by a former owner. The plantation still sells a picture postcard today with the cloudy image of what's purported to be Chloe standing between two buildings. Mostly, though, she wanders the myrtles, often spotted wearing her green turban. Sometimes the cries of the children she poisoned accompany her appearances, and other times sleeping guests are startled awake by her face, peering down at them from above the bed. She makes her presence known by cold chills, strange sounds, and as an ominous apparition that stares at people with eyes filled with hatred. Yeah, like I said, it's a good story, but there are so many lies and mistakes in the Myrtle's most famous legend, it's hard to know where to start when you're trying to correct them. Perhaps the best place to start is with the character of Clark Woodruff. He's been badly maligned over the years with stories about his rape of African-American slaves and claims he had one of them mutilated. Slavery was, without question, a cruel and racist institution, but it was legal in Louisiana at the time. Slaves were considered property, and there's no question they were abused and terribly treated, in addition to being held in bondage. However, there's no evidence that exists that even hints at the fact that Clark Woodruff abused his slaves, beyond the fact that he owned them. History shows that Clark Woodruff was very devoted to his wife and was so distraught over her death that he never remarried. And then there are the alleged murders of Sarah and her two daughters. Well, they weren't murdered. Sarah died from yellow fever in 1823. Her children, a son and a daughter, not two daughters, died more than a year later, also from yellow fever, which, as we know, was a common disease at the time. They didn't die from a poisoned birthday cake. Their death records are public and on file and prove this story isn't true. And also, according to this story, Clark and Sarah's youngest child, Octavia, wouldn't even have existed. Her mother was supposed to have been pregnant with her when she was murdered, but we know that Octavia went to school, got married, cared for her father, and lived to be an old woman. And then there's Chloe, the biggest problem of all. And why is that? Because she didn't exist. Not only did she not murder members of the Woodruff family, but it's also unlikely the family ever owned a slave by that name. Public records on file in St. Francisville show no record of a slave named Chloe or Cleo, as she's called in some versions of the story. The record lists all of the other slaves owned by the Woodruffs, but there is no Chloe. She was literally conjured up out of thin air. But why and how and how did this story get started? 
In the 1950s, the Myrtles was owned by a wealthy widow, Marjorie Munson, who heard some of the local stories that were being told about odd things happening at the house. This is all documented in articles written about Marjorie when she bought the Myrtles. Wondering if perhaps the old mansion might be haunted, she asked around, and that's when the legend of Chloe got its start. According to Lucille Lawerson, the granddaughter of Harrison and Fanny Williams, who had owned the house before Marjorie bought it, her aunt used to talk about the ghost of an old African-American woman who haunted the Myrtles and wore a green bonnet. They often laughed about it, and it became a family story. She was never given a name, and in fact, the ghost with a green bonnet from the story was described as an older woman, not a young woman, as Chloe is supposed to be. Regardless, someone told the story of the Williams family ghost to Marjorie, who loved to tell it to friends and relatives who came to visit. She even wrote a song about the ghosts of the Myrtles. Well, time passed and the story changed, and it grew. The Myrtles changed hands several more times, and in the 1970s, it was restored again under the ownership of Arlen Dees and Mr. and Mrs. Robert F. Ward. During this period, the story was greatly embellished to include the poison murders and the severed ear. Up until this point, it was largely just a story that was passed on by word of mouth, and it received little attention outside of the area. But that changed when James and Francis Myers passed through the area on a riverboat and decided to purchase the Myrtles. The house was furnished with period antiques and enough ghost stories to attract people from all over the country. Soon, the story of the Myrtles was appearing in magazines and books, much to the excitement of ghost enthusiasts who had no idea they were being told a badly skewed version of the truth. The house appeared in the November 1980 issue of Life magazine, but the first book that I found that mentioned the Myrtles was by author Richard Weiner, published around the same time. Both the magazine article and the Weiner book mentioned the poison deaths of Sarah and her daughters, along with a lot of other colorful stories that Francis Myers concocted to make the house even more exciting than it was. But first, before we get to that, we need to take a closer look at the Chloe story and why her story and others just like her have been haunting the plantation houses of the South for so many years. And the answer is simpler and a lot uglier than you might think. History has already happened. It can't be changed. It shouldn't be forgotten because if it is, we aren't able to learn from it. But history isn't just what's in your textbooks. It's the same with true crime history and with haunted history too especially when it comes to the various tropes attached to our haunted history in what's often referred to as less enlightened times. One of those tropes is, of course, the old fallback of the Indian burial grounds. And in this case, it's murdered slaves. Tours of haunted places have been a booming business for quite a few years now, and I'll confess they're my bread and butter. I've been in the business for 30 years, and during that time, I've seen a lot of changes, but unfortunately, a lot of things, I mean, too many things, really, have stayed the same. In the South, tours were often held at places where slaves died at the hands of their masters and have returned as unhappy spirits to plague the living. And it's a common theme, and why not? Slavery existed in the South, and there are countless surviving plantations today where enslaved African Americans once lived, worked, and died that now boast more than their share of ghost stories. But how accurate are these stories? 
In many cases, not very. Many of the tales told at such places often have very little truth to them and do nothing more than exploit the very real suffering that took place in the antebellum South. The stories allow people to maintain a safe distance from history, which gives the visitors room to imagine the horrors of slavery, but allows them to avoid facing the consequences of such accounts by turning the stories into a ghostly tale that may or may not be true. While some look at such tours as a good thing, where African Americans play significant roles in stories of historic sites where people were enslaved, many scholars believe that the stories just appropriate African American history in a way that outweighs the value of the inclusion. Now, I'm not sure that I agree with that completely. One of the things that I've learned over the past three decades is that stories of ghosts and hauntings will introduce history to people who never would have studied history on their own. For those of us who believe in ghosts in the afterlife, it comes as no surprise that places where African Americans were held in bondage, tortured, and abused might be haunted. Slavery is something that will forever haunt our country, and not in a ghostly way. And the horrific accounts of it should serve as reminders of what once was. History we don't learn from, as they say, is doomed to be repeated. But when do stories of ghosts haunting the places where they were enslaved do more harm than good? It's when those stories aren't true. For example, take the story of Chloe at the Myrtle's plantation. There's nothing about the revenge she takes on the Woodruff family that's true. None of the records of the farm have turned up a slave named Chloe. And yet the story's been retold and told and told again thousands of times over the years. When we look at Chloe's story in a purely academic way, it becomes clear that it's really nothing more than a racial construct using several basic stereotypes. This makes her more of a mixture of stock characters than the story of a real person. I mean, she's what they call the Jezebel character, the sexually precocious slave who disturbs the natural order of the household, trying to replace the white wife. She's also a mammy figure, the motherly slave who earns her place in the white household by loving and caring for the master's children. And in some versions of the story, she's also described as light-skinned, which makes her more attractive to her master. And in this way, she conforms to the trope of the tragic mulatto, a woman made alluring by her mixed-race heritage who tries to gain entrance into white society but is turned away by her master. So yeah, you can see why there are a lot more problems with this story than just the fact that it's not true. And one of the things that's kept the story of Chloe alive for so long is that her legend is so adaptable. You see, each person who tells the story can borrow from whatever stereotype they want to to make the story better. I mean, there are mistakes in America's past. There's no doubt about that. And I think we would all be served well if we took a good long look at how we tell some of the stories that have been with us for so long. Whether we're blaming hauntings on the ghosts of slaves or restless native spirits, we really can do better. One thing that stories like this one or Delphine LaLaurie, or this so-called Octoroon Mistress from our New Orleans season, one of the things it does for me is make me think twice about telling a story with history behind it that I haven't researched. Too often, tour guides and storytellers simply repeat the tales that have been passed along from one generation to the next without thinking twice about it. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some stories that our relatives used to tell that I don't think I want to pass along to the next generation. I just wish that some people felt the same way about the story of Chloe and some of the wilder tales of the Myrtles' plantation.
But let's get back to the stories of the hauntings at the Myrtles. Over the next two decades, more writers and television crews came to the Myrtles, and the stories about the house grew, changed, and were even more embellished, especially when it came to the murders. In addition to Sarah, her daughters, and Chloe, it began to be claimed that at least six other people had been murdered in the house. One of them, Louis Sterling, the oldest son of Ruffin Sterling, was supposedly stabbed to death in the house over a gambling debt. However, burial records in St. Francisville show that he died in October 1854 from yellow fever. And there's more. Three Union soldiers were allegedly killed in the house after they broke in and attempted to loot the place. They were supposed to have been shot to death in the gentleman's parlor, leaving bloodstains on the floor that refused to be wiped away. Years later, Francis Myers told Richard Weiner that after the Myrtles opened as an inn, a maid was mopping the floor and discovered the bloodstains. They, of course, couldn't be removed, but there was something else. No matter how hard she pushed her mop, it couldn't pass over one spot that was said to be the same size as a human body. Francis claimed this was where one of the Union soldiers had died. The strange phenomenon was said to have lasted for a month and hasn't occurred since. The only problem with this story is that no soldiers ever died in the house. There are no records or evidence to say the soldiers died there, and in fact, surviving family members denied this story was true. If the ghostly incident with the maid occurred, then it must have been caused by something else. Another murder allegedly occurred in 1927 when a caretaker at the house was supposedly killed during a robbery. Once again, no record of this crime exists, and an incident as recent as this would have been widely reported. The only event even close to this, which may have spawned the story, occurred when the brother of Fanny Williams, Eddie Harrelson, was living in a small house on the property and was killed during a robbery. Now, it didn't occur in the main house, as the story claimed, but it could have been the source behind the story. The only verifiable murder to occur at the Myrtles was that of William Drew Winter, and the facts of his murder differ wildly from the legends that have been told. As I already described, William was lured out of the house by a writer who shot him to death on the porch. It was tragic, and nearly a dozen people witnessed it. But there's a much embellished version of the story told to visitors who tour the house. In this tall tale, William was shot on the porch, and then, get ready, Mortally wounded, he staggered back into the house, passed through the gentleman's parlor, then the ladies' parlor, and managed to climb the staircase in the central hallway. Still dying, of course, he climbed just high enough to die in his beloved wife's arms on the 17th step. Super dramatic, but it never happened. William was murdered by an unknown assailant on the front porch, and after he was shot, he immediately fell down and died. His trip to the house never took place, which is information easily found in newspapers and historical records. So is the Myrtles really haunted? Well, there's nothing to say the Myrtles is not haunted. That's why I included the story in the season. I mean, it's very hard to deny the massive number of happenings that have been reported and collected here. If even a portion of those accounts is true, the house would certainly qualify as one of the most haunted houses in the nation. So if you ask me, I'll say that Myrtles is haunted, just not for the reason claimed for so many years. It's very unlikely that a woman named Chloe was ever enslaved there, but even on the very off chance that she was, historical records prove that Sarah Woodruff and her children were not murdered in the house. They died from a disease. Their spirits are not in the mirror with the so-called handprints in it that can only be seen in photographs either. 
I'm not going to explain to you how the science of mirrors work. Look it up. But basically, it's glass with a silver backing. If you take a photo of it in the right light or use a flash, you're going to see behind the glass. In a new mirror, you'll see a reflection. In an old mirror, with defects in the glass or the backing, you'll see what's in the wood behind it. The shapes in the wood, the damage to the backing, let's just say that it can look like whatever people imagine it to be. Like handprints, for instance. And finally, 10 murders did not occur in the house. There was only one. And when William Winter died, he didn't stagger up the staircase and die on the 17th step. These stories are fiction. They don't belong in the history of one of the most haunted houses in America. They're not necessary when there are true ghost stories. The ghost of the woman in a green turban or some other kind of headgear was reported by many people haunting this house. The Williams family spoke of this ghost for many years. And while it was likely a story never meant to be told outside the family, it managed to spread anyway. That ghost was real, they said. When Marjorie Munson moved in, she began seeking answers about the strange things she encountered in the house. The stories told by previous owners revealed the woman in the green turban. Did Marjorie see her too? Well, no one knows, but many others have. There are solid accounts of encountering a ghost in a green turban. One woman was asleep in one of the downstairs bedrooms when she was suddenly awakened by an African-American woman in a long dress and a green cloth wrapped around her head. She was standing silently by the bed, holding a candlestick in her hand. She was so real, the candle even gave off a soft glow. Knowing nothing about ghosts, the woman was terrified, pulled the covers over her head, and started screaming. Then she slowly peeked out and reached out a hand to touch the woman, who'd never moved. And to her amazement, the apparition vanished. Others have seen her too. And if you believe that ghosts can be captured on film, she's also been photographed. The resulting image does seem to show a woman, but she's not as young as Chloe was purported to be. In fact, she looks like the older woman described by the Williams family. I think that's the true resident ghost of the Myrtles, whoever she might have been. Even after we leave out the stories that have been proven to be untrue, the history of the Myrtles is still filled with more than enough death, trauma, tragedy, and sadness to cause it to become haunted. Many people have died in the house, from yellow fever, accidents, tuberculosis, and natural causes. Perhaps many of the deceased left a piece of themselves behind. Or if ghosts truly remain in this world because of unfinished business, there are many characters from the plantation's past with reasons to stick around. Even a fraction of the stories that haunt the Myrtles make the place seem infested with ghosts. They seem to come from different periods in the house's history. There have been many reports of children who are seen playing on the porch, in the hallways, and in the rooms. The small boy and girl may be Woodruff children who died within months of each other during one of the many yellow fever epidemics that brought tragedy to the Myrtles. The grand piano on the first floor plays by itself, usually repeating the same chord over and over again. Sometimes it continues to play through the night. When someone comes into the room to investigate the sound, the music stops and will only start again when they leave. There are legitimate accounts of crying heard from one of the second floor rooms. There are also accounts of a woman in a long dress who's been seen walking the halls as if looking for someone. Her identity, along with that of the crying ghost, remains unknown, which is perhaps why someone embellished the story and made her a French woman many years ago. A gateman who once worked at the Myrtles used to welcome visitors when they arrived. That ended on the day that he saw a woman dressed in a ball gown from the 19th century 
walked past the gate without acknowledging it. Thinking she was a new, costumed employee or reenactor, he watched her walk to the house. When she reached the porch, she didn't open the door, but instead walked through it without opening it. The gateman quit his job that day and never returned. As you can see, the Myrtles can be a baffling place. We come to the house looking for answers, but rarely find them. History proves that many of the stories used to sell the place aren't true, and yet the house seems to be haunted anyway. For many years, owners of the Myrtles have taken advantage of the plantation's infamous reputation and have opened the place for tours and overnight stays. Rooms are rented in the house and in the cottages on the grounds. The plantation has played host to a wide variety of guests, from curiosity seekers to historians to ghost hunters. Films and documentaries have been made on the property telling both sides of its ghostly story, the sensational and the authentic. But truth remains an elusive thing at this old plantation house. It's often in the eye of the beholder, or I guess really in the storyteller, it seems. But no matter what truly happened throughout the Myrtle's unusual past, there seems to be no question to those who visit there in the present day that it's a spirited place. Apparently, at the Myrtles, the ghosts of the past, whoever they might be, are never far away from the living. Well, there's more ahead for the show, so stay with us through this message from our sponsors. Coming February 10th at the Dead of Winter event, and on February 12th online is my book, Until Death Do Us Part, a sort of anti-Valentine's Day look at murder, mayhem, and malevolent tales of love gone wrong. There's no question we are all fascinated by murder. It's one of the things that brought you to this podcast. And among those murders, there are none we find more intriguing than crimes of passion. They're compelling for many reasons, not the least of which is that crimes of passion are usually not committed by criminals, but by ordinary men and women who only become criminals because of these acts. Love is strange, and it can also be tragic, murderous, twisted, horrible, and even cruel. Intense love is a form of madness that can inspire insanity, even in those who never seemed unhinged before. This special kind of madness has led to torture, stalking, obsession, abuse, and yes, even murder. Love can push a man or woman to unthinkable things, all because love can lead to betrayal, broken hearts, ruined lives, injured pride, and jealousy. It can even happen when someone can have something or someone they desperately want. And then there are those couples who share their madness between them, resulting in dire and horrific events. Sometimes lovers bring out the best in one another, and at other times, not so much. In this blood-curdling book, I present an American history of love, murder, and insanity, with stories of murderous couples, violent ends, lonely hearts killers, monsters, ghosts, black widows, bluebeards, obsessed stalkers, meat cleaver-waving madwomen, and more. Read this one at your own risk. You never know who might be sleeping beside you. Until Death Do Us Part, available February 10th from American Hauntings. Well, welcome back to American Hauntings. 
And let me just say thanks to all of you who have returned for our new season. My name is Troy Taylor, and I am the writer, narrator, and creator of American Hauntings. And with me is our producer and co-host, Cody Back. Yeah, you guessed it. Unfortunately, you got me again. Cody's not here. Uh, unfortunately, um, our uh, his health issues have raised their ugly head again, and uh, we, we, we actually started to record and weren't able to finish it, so uh, that has kind of messed things up here just a little bit, as you might imagine. That's why we're a day late, but um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the story, but let me, uh, let me hit you up with a couple of things that are coming up next. Uh, on our schedule. Um, Dead of Winter, uh, you may have heard it in the ad, my new book comes out for Dead of Winter, but that's not the main attraction. The main attraction is our free daytime event. It runs from 10 o'clock till 4 o'clock uh, at the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton, Illinois. And uh, it is our annual, I believe this is our 26th, I think, annual uh, American Hauntings food drive. We do that every winter. Um, every year in February, we put together this donation food drive, uh, offering people something fun to do in exchange for canned goods or some sort of non-perishable item that you can bring uh, to the event. Um, Traded in for uh, admission to the all-day thing. So uh, we've got speakers, we've got presenters, uh, we've got the Ghostbusters there from Springfield. Uh, we've got the American Hauntings bookstore will be open, uh, vendor room. We had a bunch of vendors down there. Uh, it's a it's an all-day thing, man, and it's free. Uh, and the food is all going to go to the Alton Crisis Food Center. And uh, they are very appreciative of everything that we do for them each year. So come on out, spend a day with us, uh, have a good time. Uh, you can pick up a copy of my new book that you might have heard about in the ad uh, until death do us part. Uh, arrange that for it to be uh, released that day so you can get a signed copy there. Or if you're not in the area and you would be interested in the book, uh, you can uh, go to the website and check out uh, AmericanHauntings.net on uh, Monday, uh, the 12th, and it will be available to order then. Um, also, I know that a lot of you are aware of this too, but the uh, Haunted America Conference uh, for 2024 tickets are now on sale. Uh, we already got some of the after-hour events that are already sold out, believe it or not. So we are, um, we're, we're, things are going, things are moving on that. So you don't want to wait too long to get signed up. I know we say that every year and I know we move to a much larger location, but we're almost half full already and uh, it's been less than a month. So if you're thinking about coming, and we hope you are, uh, we hope that we'll see you there. Um, also, oh, one last thing about Dead of Winter. Uh, I wanted to mention, um, as far as I know, Cody will be there. We will make sure that we drag him in there somehow. Uh, but we'll also be, throughout the day, uh, be recording your ghost stories that we'd like to include on the uh, special live broadcast of the Dead of Winter event, which will be coming up on Tuesday, which would be February 13th, I believe. Uh, but we want to add your ghost stories to the show. So if you've got a ghost story or just a creepy experience or, or whatever that you want to tell us about, come up to the uh, American Honeys bookstore, which is right off the lobby, right where the check-in desk will be and where we drop off the food. Uh, come on up there. Sam is going to be recording ghost stories. And if you tell us a story, you will get a prize. Now, it's not a big prize, but it's rare because no one, only those who are telling ghost stories will have them. So um, come up, grab one, get yours. 
Uh, so anyway, uh, before we go any further, um, it, it, we always want to make sure that you, we know, that you know, that if you've got a comment about the show or a quick question you'd like to have answered, uh, you can email Cody at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com or you can text us on the haunt line at 217-791-7859. I know a lot of you guys have been doing that. Um, some of them get read on the show. Uh, some of them you just get a reply back from me, <laughs> depending on what your question or comment is. And I will tell you, unfortunately, we had a, uh, several of these that I'm not going to be able to read to you because they're gone. We recorded them on the other show, which um, has been... Uh, was vanished uh, along with Cody. Um, but uh, I know I had a message from uh, Tim Biggs. I know I had one from uh, Mick Skull who asked about uh, things to do ghostly in Milwaukee. And uh, in my answer to that on the show, I did say that I know, I believe it's the Fister Hotel is known for being haunted. But I can tell you that uh, our friends at American Ghost Walks do have a ghost tour in Milwaukee, which I would recommend. So that might be something that uh, would be a lot of fun for you to do. Um, I also, uh, unfortunately, uh, had some other um, messages. One from uh, Vernon Davidson, who took me literally. Um, he uh, had heard me say when I was doing that bonus episode last week that if you had a message or a comment or just wanted to say hi to uh, get on the text line and do it. So I just got a text and I didn't even know it was him at the time that just said hi. And that was it. So, um, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I didn't literally mean just say hi, but anyway, when I sent that back to him, then I realized who it was. Um, I also had a question from someone who wanted to know about the last episode from, from season seven, when we did the, the disappearance of the solder children, ask me about the house and the foundation, uh, of the house that was there. Was it still there? Had it been removed? Um, I actually looked it up and found out that, where the house used to sit, um, that foundation is still there. It's still underground. It's still an empty piece of property. But next to it, on the property where that um, you know that outbuilding was, where the family was staying for a little while after the house had burned down, there is a new house that's built there on the property. Now, whether or not they know about the history of the place, I have no idea. But um, I do know that the foundation is still there. It's still underground. Um, if you believe the children perished in the fire, then that means it's a burial place. But if you don't believe it, because they didn't find any remains or, or ashes or bones or anything else uh, in the remains of the house, then you know that it's just an empty spot with a lot of debris in it. So anyway, um, I do have one text that I can read. It's just a short one, um, and it's from the 931. And uh, in it, the sender says, hey, guys. Binge listening again. I have to tell you my favorite season was the one covering the lamps. I've listened to the entire season four times. Keep up the great work. You guys are great. Well, that was our St. Louis season. So uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that. We did too. Um, that was, I think, our second season of the show. So I know the sound quality is not fantastic. And honestly, since I'm doing this myself, not sure how the sound quality is going to be on this today. I have no idea. Uh, but anyway, those are our text messages. So if you guys have one, as I said, you can text us on the hotline at 217-791-7859. 
Um, so, you know, normally at this point we, we talk about the show, and uh, normally I would ask Cody if he had any, any questions for me uh, about anything about this episode that, um, you know, he wasn't sure about or uh, wanted to talk more about. Um, since Cody's not here, I kind of have to depend on you guys. Um, so if you have questions, let me know. Uh, I will address them, um, even if it takes a, an extra bonus episode of the podcast to do it. If you've got questions, um, text them to me and uh, on the text line, and I will see what I can do about getting them answered for you. Um, I, I've always been fascinated with this this uh, particular story, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to start out the season with it, because I, I remember, I, I mentioned briefly uh, Richard Weiner uh, in this, uh, in the narrative here, and uh, Richard Weiner was uh, a guy, he, he wrote a, a lot of different kinds of books uh, back in the 70s and early 80s, uh, but he had three books that were about haunted houses, and um, they were called Haunted Houses, More Haunted Houses, and Houses of Horror. And that was one of the first places I ever ran across any mention of the Myrtles. And uh, I found it interesting. Well, obviously, it was fascinating. You know, you've got the story about this, uh, you know, a slave who uh, works for the family, who poisons the, the wife and children, and then returns to haunt the house. I, I mean, I had no idea at the time, any more than Richard Weiner did, that the story absolutely wasn't true. Um, a few years ago, I guess, boy, I shouldn't say a few years ago, 20 years ago or so, um, David Weishart, a friend of mine, um, was down in Louisiana, got curious and came back. And I was living in Alton at the time. He stopped in to see me and he said, hey, listen, you know, I, there, you know, I'm having some real problems with this story. And uh, it turned out that, you know, he'd found a lot of things that were missing from the record. And I, I followed up uh, on what he did and dug into it a little bit deeper and started digging into some of the other history about the plantation. And we found that there really was no truth to the Chloe story. In fact, a good part of the stories about the place just weren't true. And uh, I happened to be down there last spring. I was actually working on a documentary that, that hasn't aired yet. In fact, I'm not sure what happened to it, but I was down there filming and uh, this is what we were talking about. We were talking about the Myrtles and the fact that the, some of the stories weren't true and we're talking about, um, you know, plantation tourism as they sometimes call it. And uh, while we were there talking about the fact that the stories weren't true, there were guides at the house telling the old stories. And, you know, they have even better access to the records than I do. They're right there. Uh, but for whatever reason, they don't bother to check to see that, you know, this, this history is inaccurate, which is one of the things that I think probably a lot of you know drives me crazy. I, um, I mean, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I get it. Um, I mean, I do. I've, I've printed things that I've gone back and found out later were not exactly accurate. Or I found a, you know, a better version of the story that w was more truthful. Because, you know... I do get it, and I've talked about this on the show before. You know, we talked about the fact that back in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, I mean, all the way up into the 90s, believe me, I know, it was a lot harder to research things than it is today. You just didn't have the access to, well, there was no internet, so we didn't have online access to anything. And today we have a lot more access to things. I mean, especially newspapers. I, I know I always bring this up, but, you know, having a, a subscription to newspapers.com has, you know, really come in, uh, well, it's invaluable 
because I used to have to go through newspapers by going to a library or, you know, or better yet, if it was a library from across the country somewhere that I couldn't get to, you have to request it through your library and they send over a spool of microfiche and then you have to sit down and go through all of it and you just hope that you got your dates right or you're going to be doing that forever, just scrolling through those things. And I know that a lot of you listening are familiar with what I'm talking about, but they are tiny, tiny little newspapers that are magnified and blown up so that it ruins your eyes. There's a reason that I've worn glasses since I was 12. Um, and so, you know, that's that's how research was done. Or you found, you know, old, old folklore articles, or you found uh, an old book that, you know, they didn't have access either. They were just repeating stories they'd heard. And so I totally understand how these stories get started in the first place. But when you have the ability to correct them and you don't, I guess that's that's what bothers me. But anyway, like I said, if you guys have any questions about this, uh, let me know. Um, you know, hit up the, the text line, the hotline, sorry. And I will, uh, I'll address this stuff uh, because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to leave anything out or, or leave out something that you maybe had a question about. Uh, but until I can get Cody back, I don't have anybody to be you and ask me about it. So anyway, um, let me uh, let me wrap things up uh, by, by thanking you again for listening. Uh, I hope that you'll share the show with your friends and your neighbors, anybody you know. Um, if you like the show, or even if you don't like the show, uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes anyway. Uh, because it always helps us out. Or you can even leave a mean comment because people do. But you know what? That just helps the algorithm. So it still helps us out. Anyway, or you can send us an email or you can drop a text to the hotline. You can also check us out on social media. You can find Cody and I on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and sometimes, but not often, on TikTok. And also, don't forget, use the discount code podcast when shopping for books, tours, events, or whatever at AmericanHauntings.net. Uh, you'll find a link there for Cody's shirt store, AmericanHauntingsClothing.com, and you can use the code there too. Uh, that code will get you 10% off everything you order. Um, so anyway, um, please don't forget to do that if you're, if you're in there doing anything. Or, you know, also check us out on Patreon where you can get a bunch of different discounts. Uh, we've also got three full seasons of our other podcasts, which we call Dead Men Do Tale Tales. That's available to binge now, all three seasons, and we'll be starting season four very soon. That means that you can have brand new shows every week as a supporter. And you could become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Well, this is the end part where Cody normally reads, so I'm going to do it for him this time. Nobody to interrupt me, unfortunately. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written and performed by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Actually, no, by Troy Taylor, which is explaining why it probably is not the best. To find out more about the show, check out our website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, which features show notes, links, and photographs that go along with episodes. Thanks again for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye, so long, and... See you later.